The employer-employee relationship is broken and managers face a seemingly impossible dilemma. The old model of guaranteed long-term employment no longer works in a business environment defined by continuous change, but neither does a system in which every employee acts like a free agent. The solution? Stop thinking of employees as either family or as free agents. Think of them instead as allies. The Alliance. Managing talent in the network age. Man's time here is finite, but the influence of a man is infinite. The question is what shall we do with the daylight that remains? Alright, here we go again. The Alliance Managing Talent in the Network Age. This is written by Reed Hoffman. Ben Kesnocha and Chris Yee. These are LinkedIn guys. They came from other industries, right? I believe Reed Hoffman was originally um, like a co-founder or or early hire in PayPal, what became PayPal. And uh, so these guys are, are big dogs in, in the tech world. Um, I've done a YouTube book review of Reed's last book, uh, so you could check that one out as well. And uh, so this one is essentially about the new employment age where, you know, the old model that existed before was, you know, in the kind of the manufacturing age where if you got a job with a company, that company would take care of you for life, essentially, right? You would start at a low level, you would move up over time, earning more and more money, they would uh, contribute to some sort of you know retirement plan for you, and in and then you could retire on that plan, whether it was them paying you forever or building up a you know an investment account or something. So it was like a, a, a lifelong deal to an a, to a degree, right? People would change jobs, but it was not near as frequently. And the average uh, years worked at a single job was, or employer, I should say, was was a much longer length of time. Here we are in this tech age where uh, people are highly motivated to go chase promotions or more money or new projects, uh, a lot more focus on this freedom of choice, freedom of movement, both geographically as well as uh, what project do I want to work on now? What uh, experiences do I want to have right, and so in that competitive environment with booming businesses and tech industry always in beta mode, there are tons of opportunities for young employees to go out and chase and uh, find you know those that variety in their life that they seek. So, how do we deal with that, both as an employer and an employee? And that's what this book is trying to address. Uh, and they have some interesting solutions and ideas for you in there. So this is a New York Times bestseller. It's a short book, about 100 and I think it was 160 pages or so. And uh, let's see, uh, the conclusion ends at 155 pages. So it's a pretty easy read. It's it's pretty pretty much stays right on topic, which I appreciate. As I've said before, I like books that condense it down to you know the 150 pages and give you what they really want to tell you, right? So that's what this book does. Um, 
Let's jump into some of the highlighted things that I think you should know. I'll give you some of it, not all of it. I think you should buy the book. I'll put the link in the show notes so that you can purchase your copy from Amazon. I hope you find this helpful. Uh, This would be a book for leaders of businesses, as well as that employee who's trying to navigate, should I leave my job or does that look poorly on me and my resume, right? And you can job hop to a degree, but you need to be strategic about it and you need to be informed. So those are the kind of the two populations that I would suggest this book for. All right. From the book, page two, both parties act in ways that blatantly contradict their official positions. And thanks to this reciprocal self-deception, neither side trusts each other. Not surprisingly, neither side profits as fully as it might from their relationship. Employers continually lose valuable people. Employees fail to fully invest in their current position because they're constantly scanning the market for a new opportunity. Managers, meanwhile, are caught in the middle. They're wary about even acknowledging the problem, much less solving it. Instead of thinking about how to facilitate growth in their employees in forward-looking ways, they worry about keeping their teams intact long enough to complete key projects. No one wants to risk being jilted, so no one invests in the long-term relationship. Employers, managers, and employees need a new relationship framework where they make promises to one another they can actually keep. That's what this book aims to provide, and we think it will help build successful companies and powerful careers. So essentially addressing you know what I what I started with. There's this dichotomy. There's this there's this difficult dilemma of uh, do I stay with this employer or do I need to go somewhere else to find a better opportunity? Am I satisfied here or do I want to go find something that kind of brings me a new spark? From the employer standpoint, do I invest in this employee or is is this employee just going to walk? Uh, do we give all we can to this person or is that just a a waste of resources? when we could just uh, kind of browbeat them and get the most that we can knowing that they're leaving soon. (laughs) So it's a difficult place to be for both parties. Back to the book, employees are the most valuable resource companies insist, but when Wall Street wants spending cuts, their most valuable resource suddenly morphs into their most fungible resource. (laughs) And if that's the truth, and that's the attitude that we have, then of course, employees are not going to give their best to the employer, right? So the employer has to find a way to balance this and actually invest into their people. And that's not that hard for a company that's really growing fast and has high profit margins. But where it becomes really difficult is when we start having publicly traded companies or companies where the margins are getting tighter they start saying, you know what, we're not going to invest in in employees the way we did in the past. We're not going to invest in this training thing or uh, these team building things, right? And then the problem only becomes worse. The Alliance lays out a path forward for companies and their employees. We can't restore the old model of lifetime employment, but we can build a new type of loyalty that both recognizes economic realities and allows companies and employees to commit to each other. Skipping a bit, employees invest in the company's success. The company invests in the employee's market value. By building a mutual beneficial alliance rather than simply exchanging money for time, employer and employee can invest in their relationship and take the risk necessary to pursue bigger payoffs. 
So that's the goal of this book, okay? To help the the both parties understand the alliance. And the way he explains this opportunity as doing employment more as like a tour of duty comparable to a military tour of duty, where it's like a temporary timeframe, whether it's project-based or timeframe-based or management-based, like um, he gives a variety of different circumstances where that might be applicable and, and different types of tours of duty. But where we come into this with that understanding from both sides, the employee saying, how can I improve my resume, my skill set, my connections, and uh, gain some experience in, under your, you know, this umbrella? And the employer says, okay, we're going to help you improve your skill set, your resume, your experience, and we're going to uh, rely upon you to complete this project or manage this team or achieve these goals in the time that you're here. And let's define it as, you know, this project or this time frame or manage these people to achieve this thing. And when we have that kind of transparency in the beginning, it's much easier to sort of have continued conversations along those lines in the future, right? Okay, your tour of duty seems to be coming to an end. Uh, do we have another project for you? Or are you going to move on or whatever, right? Those These aren't surprising conversations. And we can continue to stay in check. And maybe we both really like the synergy we have here and the, the uh, camaraderie and the uh, relationship and the performance and everything. And so let's, let's talk again. Let's have another tour of duty. Let's sign you up one more time, right? Maybe more, maybe several more times. And so the transparency and the kind of being upfront about what we're both trying to achieve here helps kind of kick this off. I'm going to give you an example here from the book. Uh, he says, Lassiter began his career at Disney as a young animation designer in the days when animation was created with pen and paper, then converted into film. One day, a colleague showed him a video from a local conference about the emerging technology of computer-generated animation. Lassiter was struck by a vision Disney should create an entire film using computer-generated animation. He went to the managers and pitched the idea. They listened carefully to his pitch, then sent him back to his desk. A few minutes later, he received a phone call from the head of Disney's animation department, informing him that he was being fired. The rationale for his dismissal? He was too distracted with his crazy ideas. Like many with the founder mindset, Lasseter refused to give up on his dream. He joined George Lucas Lucas Films where he pursued computer animation as a member of Ed Catmull's computer division. A few years later, Lucas sold the then unprofitable division to Steve Jobs, who named the resulting company Pixar. And in 1995, Pixar partnered with Disney to release the world's first computer animated feature film, Toy Story. In 2006, 11 years after Toy Story was released and 23 years after Lasseter was fired, Disney realized it had made a mistake by rejecting computer animation and ended up bringing Lasseter back, but it would cost them. The Walt Disney Company spent over $7 billion to buy Pixar, and that's how Lasseter ended up back at Disney as its chief creative officer of Disney Animation Studios. 
Disney's management hired an entrepreneurial talent like Lasseter, but they had treated him as a commodity rather than an ally. And in the process, they lost their chance to develop a multi-billion dollar business. Lasseter would have been happy to develop that business with Disney, but his managers wouldn't let him. So in this, he's describing how we have different personalities in our teams and in our groups. We have entrepreneur spirits maybe aren't going to go out and start their own business, but they'd be happy to build your business for you as, as an employee, right? A salaried person. You have people who are looking for sort of that, that salary security, and they just, they want to have a job and be sort of told what their assignments are and then go home and live their lives, right? So they're more of the kind of older school, like traditional employee type. And then there's the people that want to be you know, CEOs or big time leaders and things like that. And so it's like, how do you treat each of these different characters in your business? And you need to sort of be ready for that. You need to understand that there's multiple personalities in your business and some of them are going to stay. Some of them are going to go. Some of them are happy to stay, but they need some freedom of kind of entrepreneurial drive, right? And so you got to you gotta identify these and and move them into the right areas so that you're not losing good people to other companies who will then become your competitor and you either have to try and match that or or buy them out like Disney did, right? They they could have built this business using one of their already uh, employed people who had a vision and a, a drive to create something for them. Had they let him, it would have, would have been a multi-billion dollar deal without having to purchase it from Lucasfilms. So to kind of tie a bow on that, he says, as Intuit CEO Brad Smith told us, a leader's job is not to put greatness into people, but rather to recognize that it already exists and to create the environment where that greatness can emerge and grow. And that's kind of how I try to approach my people leadership is like, my job is not to know everything or uh, give commands, but rather to bring out the best of what our team has and then share that across the board with our team, right? The alliance makes employees more valuable by making them more adaptive and skillful, gives managers the tools and guidance to work better with their direct reports, and teaches companies how to effectively leverage and retain entrepreneurial employees. We're kind of an entrepreneurial society. It's like everybody has a side hustle at this point, right? They're trying to sell products on Amazon and have their programs online and they want to start a cleaning company on the side, some sort of, you know, dabble with construction. Like people are entrepreneurs. They're doing all kinds of stuff. And so if you don't instill that into your company as a kind of a potential role to fill, uh, they'll go somewhere else to fulfill that desire and goal. Okay, so we're getting into the tours of duty now. I spent a lot of time on these early chapters and I'm going to skim the rest of the book, even though it's very good, but I want you to have some some stuff to, to read as well. The tour of duty. So both military and business tours of duty have in common a focus on honorably accomplishing a specific finite mission. Okay. So you need to build out these different models and that's what the book kind of goes into, right? Various models. So building trust through honest conversation, I already kind of mentioned that, laying it out up front, but he gives an example. Kevin Scott models the importance of honesty even more explicitly. He asks every person he manages, what job do you envision having after you leave LinkedIn? (laughs) 
before they've even started, he asks them what they want to do after they leave. He asks the same question of folks who are interviewing for jobs at LinkedIn. What job do you want after you worked at LinkedIn in order to make sure the company can offer a tour of duty that will advance their future career? Acknowledging that employees might leave is actually the best way to build trust and thus develop the kind of relationship that convinces people to stay. So again, eliminating those fears of like, I might be fired or I don't want to disappoint or I don't want to approach this conversation. So I'm just going to look for another job and then leave, right? Make it a kind of open, vulnerable, honest place to work where people can say, you know, maybe in the future I want to do this or I want to do that or whatever. And, and as a manager or company, you can say, well, this is how we can help you. Or oh, maybe we have that opportunity. Maybe we just need to shift your your focus a little bit, find this, this opening in this department or uh, oh, you want to build that or great vision. Let's let's try and put some some funding or time behind that vision and see if you can create that for us, right? Um, that way, you eliminate those awkward emotions of someone who's feeling tired, stuck, or in the mud, and and instead of just leaving without talking to you, they they actually bring up the conversation, or maybe it's built into your system. You have that conversation on a regular basis, so. Short-term alliances, long-term alliances, uh, middle-class alliances. So he goes into this. This is under long-term alliance. Even if the employee wants to explore options outside the company in a trusting alliance, he'll grant you the right of first conversation, which means he'll discuss his plans with you before he approaches other employers. So he's given an example of this employee. Her name's Dana or Dina. I'm not sure. Spelling's odd a global strategic accounts manager and a top uh, overall sales per person at LinkedIn illustrates the retention power of framework. She's been at LinkedIn for more than five years. She told us, I probably won't keep doing my current job for another five years. The current of transformation is so strong at LinkedIn. I'm sure I'll be pulled into a new challenge. In the future, I would like to make a move. I'd love to be able to stay at the company and I'd I've told my manager that not only has the company been able to build a high degree of trust with King, who has given her manager years of advance notice, she explicitly wants to sign up for another tour of duty. This is not the attitude of a job hopper. It's the attitude of a high performer who's committed to continual professional development and challenge. So there's a difference between someone who just bounces, does a subpar job and leaves and subpar job and leaves and keeps selling themselves as something great, but then you know, is going to sort of take advantage of the company and, and leave before you guys really discover how kind of weak they were. That's a job hopper. This in, in today's society, a high performer has to kind of leave their job or ask for a new job because once they've learned a skill set, the challenge is not what it used to be and they start to become bored and, and are looking for that new opportunity, that's a high performer. That's someone who's put their effort and skills to the test, done what it takes to accomplish their job and grow into that position. They're looking for a new position. They want to go up, right? They're on their way up. And if you let that person walk, you're missing out on a big resource. Uh, and so having that open conversation is important, right? Your task is to build alignment with regard to the employee's specific mission objectives, not his entire life. <laughs> All right. 
So he gives a three-step process for alignment for different types of tour of duties. I'll just give you the headers. He says, establish and disseminate the company's core mission and values. Okay, so a great company has a specific mission, right? You should be able to define that. What's your mission and how can employees fit into that? So number two is learn each individual employee's core aspirations and values. And under that section, it says, in general, you should expect that a company's missions and values will be clear and relatively unchanging, while an employee's career mission and values will be comparatively less well-defined. Number three, work together to align employee, manager, and company. Some great information in these different sections. Okay, so we're skipping to a new chapter, new new place in the book. He says, having the conversation, advice for managers, the process of aligning values can be a long one and requires establishing a deep level of trust during a series of consistent conversations. Each conversation should build on the foundation of the previous one. Okay, so the the following pages uh, go into how to have those conversations, a real framework for it. So define personal values one-on-one, right? And so you're actually getting vulnerable as a manager and saying like, here's my vision. Here's what I want to achieve. Here's the my life story that brought me to this place. Uh, what's your life story, right? Open up. Let me know. How did you get here? What significant events happened in your life? What significant jobs have you had or relationships? Or how do you deal with difficult situations that you've come across in life? in work and out of work. Uh, What do you want to do? What are you trying to achieve? What are your missions and values and uh, places you want to go, right? By opening up, you create an environment where that person is going to open up to you. So ask them specific questions about their life. And he actually says that Brad Smith applies that principle into it. So he says, we begin every interview by saying, tell me in three to five minutes your life's journey, how it led you to be the person you are today, touching on major moments in your life that helped define you and who you are and your approach to business and leadership, such as dealing with an adverse experience like a bully, the death of a loved one, or major decisions that went wrong. What makes this approach work is that the Intuit interviewer goes first, both to set the example and to model vulnerability for the candidate. So again, upfront saying we're an open communication type company. We understand that your life missions don't wholly you know, coincide with what our business mission is, but we can overlap. We can find an area where we can collaborate and make some great progress, both as an employer and an employee. Uh, chapter five is about network intelligence. He basically says that who your people know may be as valuable or more valuable than what they know right? So their skills are important, but their network might be even more important. And how are you including that network into your hiring process, into the employee's experience? Who are they going to bring in? Uh, I believe it's Reed Hoffman who says, if hired as a manager, who are the three people that you would like to hire after you? He's trying to understand, like, once you come here, who are you going to bring? And then he can, you know, potentially look into those candidates as well and see like, okay, is he bringing in significant people? What's their experience like? Why do we care? Right. Uh, understanding that their network may be the the best um, thing about an employee. Right. And how are you going to do it? So he goes through ways that different companies um have set systems in place to capture that network. And 
and that may come in the form of hiring people, but may may also just be collection of information. And I th- I want to share a, an example of that. Uh, he says, "Who you know is often more valuable than what you've read." For example, I'm going to read a couple pages here. For example, in the early days of PayPal, its most important rival was BillPoint, a rival payment system that was a joint venture between eBay, PayPal's most important partner, and Wells Fargo Bank. Consider the situation PayPal faced. The vast majority of its business at the time consisted of handling payments for eBay auctions, yet eBay itself owned a competitive payment business, BillPoint, that it was promoting to every single eBay user. To outside observers, the circumstances must have looked grim. Yet, as we know, PayPal triumphed over BillPoint, leading eBay to purchase PayPal for over $1.5 billion. One of the key factors was PayPal's superior use of network intelligence. Reed led this intelligence gathering effort for PayPal. He was executive vice president at the time and asked all the members of the team, from executives to individual engineers, to use their network intelligence to learn about BillPoint's strategy. BillPoint's team, on the other hand, completely ignored the potential for network intelligence to provide insights into PayPal's strategy. From conversations with other companies that were building on the eBay platform, such as Honesty.com and AuctionWatch, now Vendio, PayPal employees learned two key facts. First, the BillPoint team was convinced that the key success factor for an internet payment system was a deep banking relationship to combat fraud. BillPoint's leadership felt that the Wells Fargo relationship represented an overwhelming advantage over PayPal. Second, contrary to BillPoint's beliefs, the company on the eBay platform and their customers didn't consider a deep banking relationship that relevant. They placed a far greater value on ease of use, especially in email communications. Fraud prevention was a hygiene factor, not a driving force. None of this information was public, but none of it was secret either. Network intelligence should be tapped ethically. PayPal employees didn't skulk about in costumes and send questions from fake email accounts or root through Bill Point's garbage bins. They simply confirmed their findings by talking with Bill Point managers and employees and asking them how they viewed the market. Even more amazing, during these direct conversations, the BillPoint people never bothered to ask the same questions of PayPal's people. PayPal's strategy explicitly ex- emphasized network intelligence. BillPoint's did not. The third function of a network intelligence is to generate ser- serendipity, which is a major driver of innovation. Writer Franz Johansson has argued that innovation arises at the intersection of different disciplines and cultures. Skipping ahead, uh, as Deborah Ancona, Hendrick, and Bresman and David Caldwell of MIT noted in their paper, The X Factor, when innovation, adaptation, and execution are critical, success is closely related to how the team interacts with outsiders because successful teams reach across boundaries to forge dense networks of connections both inside and outside the organization. The fourth function of network intelligence is to help you see opportunities you would otherwise miss. One of the hidden stories behind PayPal's success is the crucial role network intelligence played in discovering the formula for viral growth. Once the team realized that eBay was a major driver of PayPal usage, its members looked to other companies in the eBay ecosystem for inspiration. One of these companies, 
Honesty.com had discovered a way to leverage eBay's active sellers to grow. Honesty.com provided an auction calendar. If a seller shared his eBay credential with Honesty.com, Honesty.com could add its counter to every single one of the seller's auctions. This system exposed all of the seller's auction bidders to the auction counter product, prompting other sellers to sign up and begin exposing their buyers to Honesty.com and so on. This insight didn't come from Reed or any of the other senior executives. The Honesty.com discovery came from ordinary frontline employees. Once PayPal implemented its pay with PayPal feature, sellers began adding pay with PayPal to all their auctions and PayPal's growth took off. Without network intelligence, the PayPal success story might have ended quite differently. So basically they um, encouraged their employees to find out, you know, market, market knowledge, use their network, network, even talk to the competition, things like that. And it resulted in a few key drivers that made PayPal much more successful despite their seeming, you know, disadvantage in the marketplace that, that made them successful in the, in the end. So recruit connected people, uh, listen to their ideas, encourage them to network with the, uh, external environment, the competition, et cetera. So since I've read so much of this book, I feel like I should wrap it up. Um, So I'm going to jump to the conclusion here. The Alliance creates a model for work that encourages companies and individuals to invest in each other. Imagine a world in which managers and employees have honest conversations about each other's goals and timetables, where managers and team members define jobs that match their values and aspirations, in which even employees who move on to a different employer maintain an ongoing mutually beneficial relationship with the company. So the Alliance, I thought it was a, uh, a pretty good read as far as a leader. You know, I've spent a lot of time in like middle management as well as a business owner and having a network of people who understand what your objectives are and understanding that they can come here, improve their skills, uh, build some relationships, create a network, and then move on is both beneficial to me and to them. And so I want to have that conversation right up front keep an open lines of communication so that I can understand how I can promote people, utilize their skill sets, utilize their networks and help them advance their own career. Um, And hopefully by keeping that open communication, they'll give their best to me and my company and team while they're here. Right. And, uh, and, and at the same time that may help me find new opportunities in the end as well. So the Alliance again, written by Reed Hoffman, Ben Casanocha and Chris Yee of LinkedIn. I'll put the book link in the show notes so you can purchase your copy from Amazon there. And if you have gotten any value from any of these podcasts, please, I need your help. Subscribe, uh, leave reviews, share these, uh, share your favorite episodes. Those things will help us reach a much broader audience and continue to grow the show. We appreciate you guys listening. We'll catch you on the next one. Hey, thanks for listening to the entire episode. As a token of gratitude, I want to give you a discount on my book, Ingrained. Head over to bronsonwilkes.com store and download Ingrained for less than a dollar with the coupon code GOALS, G-O-A-L-S.